Well, hey everyone, if we haven't met before, my name's Sam, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be with you to have the opportunity to open the scriptures together today. This week, we're gonna continue our study through the book of James. If you have a Bible handy, why don't you grab it, turn there right now, James chapter one, and we're gonna spend the next few minutes together just really doing our best to understand what it is that James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would wanna teach us to communicate to us today. So let's not waste any time. Let's jump right into the text. Would you stand with me wherever you are as we read James chapter one, starting in verse 19. I'm reading from the ESV Bible. He writes this. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge your presence here, even as we're in different homes all across the cities. God, we know that you speak through your word. And so right now, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you want us to hear today, and that we would listen and obey. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you're still standing, you can take a seat. The big idea that James is getting at through the text today is that as Christians, we're to know the word and do the word. And we're gonna unpack that together, but I love the way he starts these verses. What does he say? He says, know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Okay, let's pause here for a moment. This is important. James is about to give us a list of do's and don'ts when it comes to living out a pure and genuine faith. But I love that before he does, before he tells us what we're to do and not to do, what our behaviors as followers of Jesus should look like, he reminds us who we are. He says, you are beloved. And this is the difference between Christianity and the myriad of false religions. For those who are in Christ, God can't love you anymore, no matter what you do, and he, and he can't love you any less. He says, I love you, and my love for you isn't predicated on anything you do, it's predicated on who I am. See, because Jesus took on human flesh and became incarnate, took the penalty for our sins upon himself, died a death that we should have died, rose to new life, when we put our faith in him, we're declared righteous and beloved because of what he did on our behalf. So James is saying, and we see this all throughout the New Testament writings, he says, you are loved, you're beloved, you are made righteous, you're a son, a daughter of the most high God. Now go and live out your sonship. Go and live out that identity. And he's gonna explain what living out that, that identity really looks like. But this is, is so important for us to remember, especially as we look at these commands from James. See, you don't do what's right to appease an angry God and earn forgiveness for the wrong you've done. No, because of what Jesus has done, because of your hope in him, you are forgiven, you are loved by God. And he says, now go and live like those who hold that identity. James goes on in, in, in verse 19, he says this, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
See, most of us, if we're honest, we do the opposite. We're quick to, we're quick to anger, quick to speak and slow to listen. And it's easy to breeze past something like this, something written in this kind of text and, and to look at it as just good advice and say, well, well, yeah, we should listen before we speak. We should avoid little outbursts of anger. And the truth is, I think, if I were to share these words with any non-Christian person at a coffee shop in the Tri-Cities, they'd probably agree with James. It's good advice. It'll get you in a lot less trouble with your spouse if you take a little bit less time to speak, if you slow your anger, if you listen intently when your spouse speaks. But the more I spent time with this text this last week, the more I realized that this is more than just good advice. See, for the Christian, adherence to these instructions is profoundly important to God. When we read this text in light of the rest of scripture and relationship with especially New Testament writings, we see it echoed over and over again. That what, what comes out of my mouth, what doesn't come out of my mouth, and how I say what comes out of my mouth, my temperament, is evidence of whether or not I'm truly filled with the Spirit of God. Or maybe let me say it like this. The, the way that I speak is evidence of whether or not the Spirit of God is at work in my life. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 12. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. In other words, our spoken words reveal what's really going on in our hearts, inside. It's clues for the affections of our heart. What comes out of our mouth reveals either the fruit of the Spirit or the absence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Through our speech, we find out whether anger is what's deeply rooted and motivating our hearts or whether gentleness and love and kindness and self-control and all the other attributes of the fruits of the Spirit are what's driving and motivating us. And in the same passage in Matthew, Jesus adds two verses later, on the day of judgment, everyone will give account for every careless word they speak. See, apparently, according to Jesus, there's a connection between the way that we talk and our final judgment. So this is definitely something we shouldn't take lightly. And James says it very similarly when he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. But I think as Christians, especially if we've been following Jesus for a period of time, it's easy to look at this command and say like, oh good, I'm safe on this one. I don't swear anymore. I've cleaned up my speech a little bit. You know, we're so good at Christianese. We've, we've sanitized our talk. But you know where the unbridled tongue often shows its face for us, for Christians? In gossip and slander, how we talk about others when we're angry or jealous or irritated or, or even just insecure. And, and gossip, sometimes it shows up in really sneaky ways. Like sometimes gossip and slander shows up in, in the way that we overshare about others, talking poorly about people when they're not around. Sometimes gossip looks like conversations like, do you ever feel this way when Doug says this? Or when Angela does this, does it ever make you feel like this? Like you're almost building an alliance around yourself, a team of allies who see things your way. Watch out. Those behaviors are destructive. And sometimes in the church, gossip also shows up in prayer requests. Like some, you might say a phrase like, I'm only telling you this because I want you to be praying. No. Well, maybe that could be part of it, but I think if we do a deep dive into our hearts and the reason for oversharing about others, there's a big part of it that it actually feels good to air out other people's dirty laundry because it puts us a step above them. It puts us up in an ivory tower so we can look down on their misfortune and struggles and their sin, and that's gossip. You do not need to share the ins and outs of a situation in order to pray. God knows. Proverbs 10:19 says this, Sin is not ended by multiple words, but the prudent hold their tongue. 
When we feel insecure about ourselves, when we feel threatened, when we feel angry because of something someone said, it's actually human tendency to want to push ourselves up by pushing others down. But James says, no, don't do this. This is not good for your soul and it's not good for the community. It's toxic and it destroys, it ruins your Christian witness. Church family, We need to guard our tongues. We need to be slow to speak. We need to watch the words that are coming out of our mouth. Because according to the teachings of James, we can go through all the Christian motions. We can memorize scripture, go to community group every every week. We can can go to do all the right Christian behaviors, the religious actions, but if it's not, if what we're learning isn't changing our hearts, our affections, our actions, and what's coming out of our mouth, it's all in vain, it's worthless. And that's where where James goes next. He says in verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, knowing the word is incredibly important. Studying theology is important. Sitting under good Bible teaching is important. And it's in knowing the word that we actually learn how to make sense of the culture we live in. It's in seeking to deeply know God's word, to use the, the words of James, in meekness, receiving the word of God that we're saved. That being said, according to James, knowing the word, although incredibly important, isn't enough. We need to be doers of the word. (laughs) Within Christianity, I think there's often two camps. There's the word people, and then there's the do people. The word people, they study scripture, they exegete every single verse. They're they're doing Greek and Hebrew studies with their preschoolers. These, These people are incredibly passionate about understanding God's word and they take it very seriously. They're about holiness and right heart postures and making sure that doctrine and theology is sound. This is good. And then there's do people. These are people that spend all their spare time on the downtown east side. They hand out sandwiches. They're doing blanket drives in the winter. They're they're practicing Christian hospitality, inviting the needy into their homes. And, And this is amazing. To this, I say yes and amen. But here's the thing. It can't be one or the other. We can't be word people who are theologically and doctrinally sound, but do nothing with it. As James says, that's actually incredibly dangerous because it leads us to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're righteous because we know a lot of biblical truths. On the other hand, we also can't be do people who are all about social justice because if our good works aren't rooted in a deep conviction of the father heart of God and the truth of the gospel, then our works are only gonna be a fad. We'll ride the social justice wave, we'll shop ethically for a season, we'll recycle, we'll help with the homeless, we'll, but we'll eventually lose our zeal because although good, our social justice initiatives maybe came from some stirred emotions or maybe made us feel really good when we served the needy, rather than a conviction about what it means to be made in the image of God and the people of God in a broken world. We're to hear and do, hear and do. Hear the word, do the word. Think of a bicycle. One pedal is hear the word, the other is do the word. And this is a constant force. The force of each pedal is what brings balance in our Christian life. Hear the word, do the word, hear the word, do the word. Think about it like a race. If you exercise without eating, you're not gonna have the nutrients you need to finish the race. On the flip side, if you eat without exercising, you're gonna have all sorts of health problems. I was watching a documentary a while back about large people. I mean, these are really big people. A lot of them are over a thousand pounds and they've eaten so much that they can't even get out of their beds. They need someone to come and feed them and really all they can do is move their mouth as they keep eating. It's, It's sad. But this is is a great mental picture, a reminder of what happens when we only hear the word and do nothing with it. We're just consuming more and more and more spiritual food, podcasts and books and sermons and classes, but what are we doing with it? A.W. Tozer said this, 
There's an evil which I have seen under the sun in which its effect upon Christian religion may be more destructive than communism, Romanism, and liberalism combined. It's the glaring disparity between theology and practice among professing Christians. So wide is the gulf that separates theory from practice in the church that an inquiring stranger who chances upon both scarcely dream that there was a relationship between them. An intelligent observer of human scene would, would hear the Sunday morning sermon and later watch the Sunday afternoon conduct of those who'd heard and would conclude that, that they'd been examining two distinct and contrary religions. He goes on to say this, it appears that too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right, but are not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right. So the divorce between theory and practice becomes permanent. Here's a really simple analogy to help us understand this point. Let's, let's pretend that you work for me. In fact, you're my executive assistant in a company that's growing rapidly and expanding. And I'm the owner. I'm interested in expanding the business overseas. And to pull this off, I, I plan to travel abroad and stay there until this new branch office gets established. So I make arrangements to take my family and move them over there for six to eight months. And I leave you in charge of the busy organization back home. I tell you, I'm going to write regularly and give you directions and instructions for how I want you to be leading the company. And so I leave and, and you stay back, you stay at the headquarters, months pass and flow, a flow of letters and mail becomes, starts to come from me. And you receive it at the national headquarters. And in it, I spell out all my expectations about what I want to see happen back home. Finally, after about eight months, I return to Vancouver and, and soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office, excited to see you all and I'm stunned. Grass and weeds has grown up high, a few windows along the streets are broken. I, I walk into the front office and the staff are playing cards and listening to music so loud I can barely hear myself think. And I, I look around and I notice that waste baskets are overflowing and, and the carpet hasn't been vacuumed in weeks and nobody seems concerned at all that I, the owner, have arrived. I ask where you are and someone's in the crowded lounge area, they point me down the hall and yell, I think he's down there. Disturbed, I, I move in that direction and I end up bumping into you as you're finishing a chess game with our sales manager. And, and I step into my office, which has now been temporarily turned into a gaming room with projectors and consoles. And I say to you, what in the world is going on, man? What do you mean, you say? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters? Oh yeah, sure, we got all of them. As a matter of fact, we had a letter study every Friday night since you left. We've even divided up the employees into small groups and we've discussed lots of things he wrote. Some of those things were really interesting, really insightful. You'll be pleased to know that there's a few of us who've actually committed to memory some of the sentences and the paragraphs. One or two memorized an entire letter or two. Great stuff in those letters. <laughs> Okay, okay, you got my letters, you studied them, you meditated on them, discussed them, even memorized them, but what did you do with them? Do? Oh, we didn't do anything. Okay, this kind of behavior is obviously absurd in the workplace, but how much less absurd are we when we hear God's word, when we read these letters that he gives us in scripture without the slightest inclination that we're to obey them? If it's not intentional disobedience, and at the very least, we're self-deceived. And, and this is why James follows his call to be hearers with verse 22, which says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. If we're going to profit from scripture, we need to accept it and do it. 
So then the question becomes, well, what does doing the word look like? What does it actually look like to practice doing the word? Well, well, verse 27 in our passage says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Apostle John also writes about this and he puts it in these unforgettable words. He says, but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, in some ways, I recognize that I'm preaching to the choir on this one. I don't know any church in the country that's more committed to missions work, to serving the marginalized, the broken in our community, and around the world than Coquitlam Alliance Church. I mean, Diane and her team are, they're doing groundbreaking work to bring the tangible love of Jesus to a hurting and broken people around the globe. And, and, and there's people in our church who inspire me so much in this area. There's people who give all their extra money and then some to missions work. There's people in our church who regularly travel overseas when they're allowed to serve and to love, to give their time, their resources, to care for those in need. There's also dozens of people who've given countless hours to, to our hampers initiative, literally giving hundreds and hundreds of food hampers to those affected by COVID-19 in our community. This is amazing. These people get it. But here's the thing, for the rest of us, being part of a church that's, that does great missions work is not enough. James is telling us that, that we need to care for the widow and the orphan and that our care for the needy must go beyond supporting social programs or something that's done through hands of others, but personally we need to do it. To do the word described by James is to be involved in their afflictions, affliction due to illness or fractured relationships or poverty or unemployment or disease or, or family tensions. James insists that acceptable religion before God reaches out and embraces the widow's and the orphans. But then we wonder, why does James single out orphans and widows in his command? In a chapter that's all about relationship with God and bringing about Christian maturity, why specifically note the importance of caring for widows and orphans? Well, most simply because widows and orphans were the most vulnerable in the ancient world. They were marginalized by their governments. In a, in a patriarchal society, really a single woman or, or a parentless child unfortunately had no rights. They were trapped in systemic poverty. And the thought, the heresy of the day was that if you're facing circumstantial hardship in your life, it's probably because of some sin that you've committed against God. And so if you're, if you're experiencing some deep pain, if something bad has happened in your life, like a loss of a husband or a parent, those around you would likely think, wow, this person must have committed something so great that they deeply offended God. And this is his punishment on them as a response. All of that is piled on top of the deep pain and anguish that these people were going through as they lost a parent or a spouse. And so orphans and widows, they're, they're dealt this hand that was almost impossible to play with no options and no escape. In short, they were completely and utterly vulnerable. And no one really seemed to help. But those who got close enough to Jesus as he walked on the earth saw a different way of living. He developed a, a sort of reputation that the only way you could get to him, the only way you could get to Jesus was to get through a crowd of orphans and widows. If you wanted to get to Jesus, you had to go into a low-income neighborhood. You had to swim through the marginalized masses and, and, and be among the societal mess because those are the people that Jesus spent time with. If you wanted to be with Jesus, you're gonna to have to work your way through the crowd of the poor, the uneducated, the unclean, the vulgar. Anyone who wanted FaceTime with the God of the universe had to make their way through that crowd. 
and as followers of him, as people who are meant to mirror the person of Jesus in the world. He's also calling us, his followers, to lead, to, to get our hands dirty, to walk through the mess of life with those who deeply need to encounter the person of Jesus. The early church, they took this command very seriously. See, tragically, in the, in the very first few centuries, abandoning unwanted infants to die of exposure was a common practice of the day. Infanticide was an epidemic running rampant through the, the Roman Empire, and this practice was considered acceptable, especially if you had a female child, who sadly wasn't viewed as a functional part of the family. And so you could just leave that child out on the streets to die of exposure. This was common practice. And then Christians, transformed by the love of Jesus, actually started to fight and stand up against these laws. And they began to take in the abandoned, raise them as their own kids, feed them, clothe them, love them. And as a result, by the time this practice was finally outlawed, it was barely even a problem anymore. Because in the Roman world, people stopped just abandoning their kids randomly and instead began to drop them off on the steps of church buildings or known gathering places of Christians because those people, the Christians, would take in those children and care for them as their own. The Christians of the early church, they, had, they made such a profound impact on the cities that they lived in that they actually changed the culture where they lived. Being willing to be inconvenienced, they practiced a gospel sort of hospitality, caring for strangers, loving the widows, parenting orphans, and truly making the Savior look beautiful as he radiated off of them into the darkest places of society. And James tells us in verse 25 that those who do the word, who live out their faith in, in radical and beautiful ways, like we see in the early church, they are blessed. In Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, those people will see God. And really, they experience an intimacy with him that the rest of us don't. In June of 2015, uh, my wife and I got a call that profoundly changed our lives. On, on that call, we were asked if we could consider caring for and raising a little four-year-old boy named Jaron. In short, his mom had, was a loose family friend, and she was walking through some real difficulties in her own life, resulting in her needing someone to care for her little boy. So she reached out and asked if we'd consider raising Jaron. And I remember that moment so clearly. My heart was racing. I mean, immediately we knew what we needed to do. We'd been asking God to provide opportunities like this for this kind of thing, and finally the moment had arrived. I was, I was 24 years old. We'd only been married for a couple of years. We felt completely unequipped for the challenge ahead, but we knew that in our hearts that this was the heart of Jesus. So with lots of excitement and nervousness and everything in between, we said yes. And days later, Jaron arrived on a flight from Ontario and quite literally our, our, our world changed. Overnight, we became guardians. This kid was everything to us. And there were great challenges and it stretched us in ways we didn't even know we could be stretched, but it was also so deeply rewarding. Jaron had, had never met his biological father. And I remember one night while I was putting him to sleep with a squeaky little voice, he said, I wanna call you daddy. Oh, that moment. I also remember the first meal we had together when, when uh, I told Jaron we were going to pray to Jesus before we ate. And he looked me straight in the eyes. He said, I hate Jesus. And we were shocked and kind of laughed nervously. And we said, well, we're going to pray. So if you want to just sit here and wait for us to be done, you can do that. And, and he did. Uh, but over time, the disdain for Jesus began to change. I remember one day, a few, a few months later, we were in a park and, and we overheard him telling another little kid about Jesus, how he died on the cross for his sins. And it was so cool to slowly see him, even at four or five years old, being changed by the gospel, by the love of Jesus. 
We had so many memories together. We went to Disneyland. He learned to, to read with us. He learned to ride a bike. We tried new foods together. We read Bible stories together. And then one day, much sooner than we ever dreamed, we got another call. And Jaron's mom decided she wanted him back. We were gutted. We thought Jaron was gonna grow up here. I thought I'd be teaching him how to shave, giving him a pep talk before his first date. I thought I'd be standing with him at his graduation and, and that we'd, we'd be at his wedding. And suddenly all of that was out of sight. And after only 18 months in our home, just, just as quick as he came, Jaron left. And we felt powerless. As much as we wanted to fight to keep him, there was nothing we could do. But here's the thing, in that short year and a half that Jaron was with us, he changed my life, I think, in more ways than I changed his. And although his, le his leaving was deeply painful, the most painful thing I've ever experienced, and we shed tears for months, and yet, if the opportunity came up to do it again, we'd say yes every time. Because in relationship with that little five-year-old kid, I experienced God in ways I can barely find words to describe. In caring for this child who needed a home and accepting him as our own kid. I mean, I would do anything for this kid. Even right now, I would do anything to bring him back. And in those moments, I'm reminded of the love of the father, that God adopted me into his family, that I was desperate and in need, and he came to my rescue, and he called me son and gave me all the joys that being a son brings. There is sacrifice in stepping up and doing the work of Jesus, but there's also great reward, great blessing, great intimacy with God that quite honestly, I don't think there's any other way to experience. So where do we go from here? What, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you? How do we apply this passage in October 2020 living in Coquitlam, BC? Well, I think the application of this passage is gonna be different for everyone. But I wanna urge you to spend some time today praying and asking God, what does doing the word require of me? Here's some places to start. Can, can we get really real for a moment? There are 80,000 children in the foster system in Canada right now. There's 80,000 children in need of a stable home. There's 30,000 churches from coast to coast in our country. That means if, if just three families of every church in our country took in a child in need, we could solve the foster care problem. What would that do for our community if Christians stepped up and lived the gospel in this way? What would that do for the children who are bouncing home to home, some better than others, but never really having a place to call their own? What if they got planted in a Christian home with people who loved them? I think if we're listening to God, then he's gonna call some people in our church to step up and be foster parents, modeling the heart of God as they care for children who are in need. I don't know what doing the word looks like for you, but I also know that there's churches in Mexico with pastors and leaders who are not eating because they're serving poor communities that can't afford to pay their pastors, but they continue to serve and preach the gospel and baptize people. Maybe obedience for you, and this means committing to, to, to live a little bit more simply so you can support them and meet their very practical and physical needs. I know there's women in other countries overseas who walk miles and miles in the heat of the day searching for clean water for their children. Maybe, maybe caring for the vulnerable means figuring out how to dig them a well so they can have clean water. Or maybe very simply for you, doing the word looks like reaching out to your sister-in-law or your neighbor who just went through a nasty divorce and is struggling to keep her kids while barely paying her bills. And maybe Jesus would ask you to step up and to serve in radical and uncomfortable ways. I don't know what this means for you, but I know if we're serious about being doers of the word, then the Holy Spirit's gonna lead us just as he led the early church to step up and to bring the light of Christ to the darkest places of our society. So let's be the church. Let's be a people who are not only committed to hear the word, 
but to do the word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, thank you for your word and these very compelling, very convicting truths that we just looked at today from your servant James. And I pray that the words that I've said that are from your heart, God, that those would, sit, that they, they would go on deep, good, rich soil and they would bear much fruit in our lives. We want to be people who are after your heart. Teach us. Show us how to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.